You know this passage, I guess, because we've said it a few times already in this, in this gathering. We've talked about it in the past. These are the opening words from John's gospel, chapter 1, the fifth verse. Listen to this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. That's a very inspiring sentiment to me. It's encouraging to hear that light comes, and though there's darkness, the darkness does not win. Does that bring some courage and, and um, uh, some bravery to your heart when you think of that, that the light has come and the darkness does not overcome it? Yes? Yeah, when John wrote these words, he had in mind the birth of Jesus, whose coming we celebrate each year at Christmas time. When Jesus was born, light shined into the darkness, the true light, the goodness that will ultimately be victorious over all evil. That is the promise with which this gospel begins. But to grasp the meaning of it, we have to understand not only the light, but also the darkness. And this morning, our aim together is going to be to have the strongest possible grasp of what John means when he speaks of darkness. You all know that there's lots of darkness in the world, don't you? You don't need anyone to tell you what that is. But be, before we think out there, if we will understand the promise of John, we have to listen to him to understand what darkness he means. In verse 10 of the same chapter, he speaks of Jesus the light in a slightly different way. Here, look, look at what he writes, in, in not 10, excuse me, in verse 9, he writes, the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. The birth of Jesus means the arrival of the true light. It was our theme last week. The light which clarifies the truth which would otherwise be impossible to see. The light which offers protection in the dark when security is required but absent. The light that encourages every heart weighed down in the shadows, bringing joy. The light which exposes our need because of our sin and God's love and his provision. Jesus is the light that enlightens everyone in that way. That's who this child is. And at Christmas, we're all invited to welcome him in again, to welcome the light. Now, it turns out that welcoming the light will always be challenging for each and every one of us because there is darkness in all of us. Are you able to acknowledge that this morning? It's not easy, and maybe we don't want to, but all of us will find ourselves inevitably tempted to turn away from the light in certain moments toward the darkness. And I'm not talking only about people out there who will not come to church during Advent season, but I'm speaking of all of us, those who have faith. From Jesus' birth until this very day that we find ourselves in, his people have always struggled to welcome him truly. Do you know that? John makes it very plain in what he writes next. Look at verse 10. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. This is the darkness, according to John. The fact that the world to which Jesus came did not know him. Even though that world had received its existence 
from him, they couldn't see Jesus accurately. He came to help. They treated him as if he were the enemy. He came to extend God's love and mercy to the world that needed him. And instead of receiving him, they judged him and rejected him and crucified him. He was the light, God's true light, but the people preferred the darkness. He makes it explicit in verse 11. Look, he came to what was his own, and his own people did not accept him. Here is the, the finest point of what John means when he speaks of darkness. Jesus' own people not accepting him. From start to finish, if you read through the Gospels, you will notice every one of them is unanimous on this point. The primary resistance that Jesus faces comes from the people of God. Not, first of all, from the irreligious or people who don't want anything to do with God, but from the very people who are most interested in God. Now, that group includes everyone in this room. Now, take this to heart for a moment. We, today, are the ones from whom the darkness that John addresses emerges. And you may not want to admit this, but the truth about every one of us is that inside of our hearts, individually, and collectively all together, we will always struggle with the darkness. And now I'm going to ask you, as your pastor this morning, to be humble and to be honest. To resist the temptation to look out there at others where the darkness is very obvious and look instead in here at yourself at this church where it's harder to see and therefore much more dangerous. And this is the question I'm going to ask you to put to yourself right now. Where do I personally resist the light of Jesus? Does anything come to mind? Yes or no? It, it, it might be hard, but it's important if we're going to learn this morning from John and to receive the promise, which is that the light does not overcome the darkness, it's going to be important and necessary for us to stop looking at all the darkness out there. And there's an awful lot out there, right? I don't mean to gesture to the south because there's bad cities to the south of us. It's to the north as well. All around us, there's darkness. But within us, if we will not be open to it, we surely will not see what John needs for us to see this morning, what God means for us to see when he tells us that the light comes and the darkness does not overcome it. If we go through the gospel of John with an open heart, what we will see is that again and again, Jesus confronts darkness from within God's people. And if we are humble, then we can see what God wants us to see so that we can move away from the dark to the light. Let's see if we can recognize ourselves in some of the darkness that Jesus faces from within the community of faith. Would you be willing to do that? I need your help now, yes or no? Okay, the first episode where Jesus faces clear darkness from within God's people happens in the second chapter of John's gospel. You don't have to read far to see it. Jesus and his friends have come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. At that time, the city would have been filled with thousands of religious pilgrims. They make their way to the temple, and they come within the temple courtyard, and immediately Jesus recognizes two groups of people there, aside from the worshipers. There are men who are sitting at tables with money on it, and they're there to exchange currency. And then there's another group of priests who stand before the stalls in which there are animals for sale. 
And these two groups are there interacting with all of the folks who've come to worship. When, when you travel to Jerusalem for Passover, you bring with you your coins for the temple tax. And the coins that people carry around in those days are the Roman currency. And that means they have on them an image of Caesar. And everyone knows you can't pay the temple tax with a coin that has Caesar's image on it. And so there's an exchange uh, provided there for all the folks who will bring their temple tax. And, and it's also required that each person who comes to worship would bring with them a sacrifice, an animal that captures their devotion to God and demonstrates their decision to give something back. An ox or a sheep, if you can't afford that, a dove will do. And there, these stalls hold those animals for folks who don't have the animals they need. These two provisions are good as far as they go, but the moment Jesus enters the courtyard with his friends, he sees a little bit of darkness in each one of them. You see, these necessities have been twisted by the religious authorities into an opportunity to make a little money for themselves. And that's dark. Do you think that kind of thing still happens today in religious communities? We might not want to talk about it, but do you think it does? You see, it was in, in Moses' law that every worshiper has to bring an animal that is without spot and without blemish. And there, there's a good reason for that. Because uh, God knows that we withhold our very best at times. And so Moses said, bring an animal that has nothing wrong with it to the temple when you worship. But what was happening in those days is, well, it was the priests who worked with the men selling the animals who got to determine whether the animal that you brought from your farm was good enough or not. And guess what happened every single time a person brought their best animal? Not, yeah, not good enough. The priests would constantly, and do you know the priests were actually working with the men who were selling the animals? And those animals cost a lot more than they should at Passover time. And Jesus knew it. It was the same with the money changers. They got a, a, a fee for exchanging the currency, but they were charging way more than was reasonable. Like when you take money out of someone else's ATM and it's $4.50 to get $20. And Jesus saw this happening and he knew that money was going to the priests who oversaw the entire endeavor. And in this moment, what he saw was a darkness that emerged from within God's people and it was the darkness of greed. And that kind of darkness, it shuts out the light of Jesus because Jesus' light invites us to be the very opposite of, of greedy, which is to be generous. And here amongst God's people, the worship that is meant to facilitate this relationship between God and his beloved is spoiled by this barrier of greed. Jesus, seeing it all, he, he's angry if, if for good reason. He should be. And he raises his voice and he makes this claim. Look at what he says. This is... Uh, chapter 2, verse 16, stop making my father's house a marketplace. And he says that because he knows that when God's people turn God into a commodity, that they manipulate into an opportunity to make money, then that is dark. And it is not hard to find historical examples of greed in the Christian church. If you go to Rome, and you visit that beautiful city, you see cathedrals that cost an awful lot to build while there were poor people all around who didn't have enough to eat. And there's some darkness there. Do you see it? And then you turn away from there and you go on to the news and you can find innumerable examples of, community of communities of faith who mismanaged their funds in order to support a, a shameful, lavish lifestyle for their 
leaders, and that's greed, and it's dark. And now, anyone who's paying attention to me will have to note that what I'm doing is looking at the darkness over there in Rome or out there in that other church, and none of that helps us. Do you see it? And I need to be humble, and you need to be humble too. And that means I need to ask, as the pastor in this church, am I doing everything I can to say no to the desire for more in order to serve God more faithfully? Or am I letting greed pull me, the staff, the elders in this church who are making the decisions about how we use the money that you give? Are we generous or are we tempted into the darkness? That's a question that we have to always ask. It's a question that you, as a member of this church, should be asking. How is Renaissance Church using the resources that God has trusted it with? In order to be open to the light, will you do that? Yes or no? You will also need to ask the question of yourself personally. Because it's not only institutions or large organizations that are tempted to turn God into a commodity, but the question for you is, am I looking at God as if he exists to make me happy, better, to build me up? Or am I letting God lead me into the light where whether it hurts me or helps me, I want to serve the purposes that he has in mind for me. That's what Jesus wanted with his, with his disciples, to receive Jesus means to say no to greed, to be a church that commits to faithfully handling all of its resources, doing what's right without regard of the cost and without seeking to benefit ourselves, first of all, consistently refusing to turn our Father's house into a marketplace. And on a personal level, it means taking an honest look at myself and asking, do I love things in a way that draws me in the wrong direction away from Jesus? And from his light, where generosity is a priority into the darkness of the greedy drive for more. Receiving the light means saying no to the darkness of greed. Now, that's only the first instance of greed we see as we look through the Gospels. Here's a second one. It's another kind of darkness which unfolds uh, right there before Jesus and his followers. And, and like greed, listen now, like greed, it's the kind of darkness that people who won't go to church see and it makes them feel confident that the right thing is to reject Christianity or religion because there's nothing good in it. I'm speaking about the darkness, which you, you certainly have seen, the darkness of bad faith. Hey, listen for a moment. When concern for keeping the rules, which is good, turns into something bad. Have you ever seen that in a religious community? When religious people become so focused on something minor that they miss the major things that matter most to God. And, 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 and then, instead of uh, letting their good convictions lead them in, into tasks that are beneficial for the world, they're blinded to what matters most to God, and they can't see uh, the good things he's doing around. That's bad faith. And Jesus encounters this from the religious authorities again and again. Here, let me show you what I mean. There was a man in Jerusalem who had been sick for 38 years, lying on his mat, uh, crippled and unable to move by a pool. Everyone, all of the locals knew him because he was there day after day hoping that someone would finally help him get into the pool so he could be made well. Does some of you know this story in the Gospels? Yeah, Jesus comes to him and he says to him, do you want to be made well? Get up, take your mat and walk. And remarkably, miraculously, the man is healed right there on the spot. He stands up and he takes his mat and he begins to walk. Can you imagine being one of the locals in that community who had seen him day after day 
and year after year, now watching the miracle of his healing. Can you imagine that? The religious authorities, the Pharisees, they saw him, and instead of seeing a miraculous healing, they saw a Sabbath regulation being broken. Uh, God had taught through the law of Moses that, that the Sabbath should be honored, and that's true. But they added to that uh, word from the law of Moses their own interpretation, and they began to add up all of the things that people were not allowed to do on the Sabbath. And wouldn't you know it, one of those things was carrying your mat. And so here, instead of seeing the miracle of Jesus, they see one of their rules being broken. Do you see the blindness in that? It happens, again, you go further into the Gospel of John, and there's a man who is born blind. And Jesus comes to him, and, and he spits in the mud, and he makes a special ointment out of his saliva and the dirt. He molds it together and puts it on the man's eyes and tells him, you go to the pool and wash that out of your eyes. And, and Jesus does this in part because that pool is going to have the religious leaders. They're going to be nearby. It's Again, it's a religious festival when this happens. He gets there. He washes out the dirt, and behold, he can see. Again, an absolute stunning miracle. And again, instead of seeing this miracle, what they see is rules that were being broken because after all, making clay, well, that's work and that must have been some work to make that clay. And, and that, who did that? That's not right, they say. And, and after all, he shouldn't have been washing like that. You shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. And again, instead of seeing the gift of God, they only see the rule which is broken. And this is what bad faith looks like. In John 9, 16, this is what happens. Look, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. And the problem is, Jesus is from God. That's exactly who he is. He is from God. It's obvious because no one who was not from God could do such a thing. But these, these religious folks cannot see what God is doing right here. They can't see the shining brilliance of Jesus' power because they are stuck in the dark. And for them, the dark is this tendency that, that emerges over and over again in seriously religious communities, which is the darkness of turning the morals that matter most to them into the main thing, when those morals are never the main thing. In this case, the set of Sabbath regulations that they came up with, and the outcome is that they have become spiritually blind and they fail to see Jesus. Now, this is an opportunity for us, if we're going to be honest and humble, to be challenged to see ourselves in this kind of story, the second kind of darkness, which was, was there but also can be in us. And here it is, you ready? Whenever a community of faith prioritizes its favorite morals, this is exactly what happens. They become blind to the most important things that Jesus is doing. Now, even as I challenge you to recognize this pattern in our own midst, I know how hard it will be to do this, and I'll tell you why I know that. Because I also do this. I have my own set of things which are the most important to me as a person whose profession involves reading and then trying his best to explain the scriptures. And do you know, I constantly am coming across things in the scriptures there which I tend not to talk about very much amongst you because they're not my favorite things. And instead, I talk about my favorite things. You do this too. You do. And they were doing it there. And the result is that they became blind to what Jesus was doing. Every group of people who decide to take Jesus seriously, who decide to care about faith, will always find themselves naturally creating a vision of what matters most to God that makes them look as good as possible. Would you let that sink in for a moment? If it's landing, would you go, hmm? <laughs> I'm serious, this is what we do, we all do it. 
And we build that vision of what matters most to God, not only in a way that makes us look best, but makes the other that we've decided is the other look the worst. And when we do that, we are in the dark and the darkness is in us. We have our blinders on for the places where we don't measure up because we don't want to see that. And that makes it impossible for us to see what Jesus is doing when he shows up. And listen, Jesus is showing up always. He wants to show up to liberate us, to love us, to help us. And as long as we uh, are exhibiting this kind of bad faith, not only will we try to shut his light out from those others, but we'll end up shutting it off from ourselves. The question for us will be whether we are faithful to the rules that we care about most or to the living Lord Jesus Christ who cares about us and everyone more and even more deeply than the rules that we think matter most. Are we seeking the living Lord Jesus or replacing him with our moral agenda that we prioritize? That's the question for us. Would you be willing to ask it? Yes or no? Faith, bad faith, is another kind of darkness that Jesus confronts. Uh, one more that I'll share this morning. A third moment of profound darkness comes a little bit further on in the story that John tells. This one is more personal than the first two examples because it emerges from Jesus' inner circle, one of his 12 hand-picked apostles, okay? The first darkness, that darkness of greed in the entire religious community, we might say, well, that's the the great big church, we're not a part of that. The, the second kind from these religious authorities, we could say, well, we're not moralists, that's not us. This third one, this third one should make each and every one of us most open to, to self-reflection because it's one of the men that you would think was the most faithful who turns out to be someone other than he had made himself appear to be. And this is the darkness of duplicity. Now, my guess is most of you know the character that I'm alluding to when I talk about the one of the 12 who was duplicitous. Do you know who I mean? Who is he? Judas. And we love Judas because he makes us look good. Right? He's so bad. And so we like him. But, but trust me now, please. That affection we have for that bad guy is a strategy that we've developed to protect ourselves from the light so we don't have to admit the darkness that's in us too. It was the very last meal Jesus was going to eat with his friends, the last one. They were back in the city of Jerusalem, the same place where at Passover, they had seen the money changers and the people selling the animals. They went back again. This time, Jesus' friends said to him, are you sure you want to go to the city? The, the authorities by now are looking to arrest you. It's dangerous. Jesus knew that. They went to the city uh, despite that danger. And now at the table with them, he opens up to them in a new way. And he says very plainly, my death now has become inevitable. It's unavoidable. This is it. The last meal that I'm going to have with you. Now you can imagine they were thinking in that moment, this can't be. It's, it's so dark. They didn't want to accept it. And then on top of that, he adds a statement which is so dark, it's impossible for them to even imagine. When he says, this is John 13, 21, he says to them, very truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. Imagine that. One of you who has been walking with me and learning from me for these past three years, it's going to be you. 
one of you who everyone sees as my inner circle. You know that all of the people who had heard about Jesus knew that these 12 were the closest. One of them, one of his trusted companions is going to be the one from whom the darkness of duplicity rears its ugly heads. Tipping the domino that will eventually kill Jesus there are Christians, please listen now, stop thinking of this story for a moment and think of the present. There are Christians who seem to have strong faith who will turn out to be duplicitous. Have you ever seen one of those? This scene here teaches us that we should expect this darkness even from Jesus' closest followers. As sad as, sad as that is, it's true. Men, no matter how close to Jesus, can prove to be untrustworthy. And now, as I'm saying that, my guess is most of you are thinking of noteworthy stories in the news of prominent Christian leaders who turned out to be scoundrels. But, but that is true, but don't look out there for a moment. If you're thinking, yeah, those guys are terrible. It could never be me who would do that. I want you, with humility, to watch how the disciples around that table responded when Jesus told them, that it would be one of them who would betray him. Look at verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he was speaking. And what that means is not one of them was thinking, ah, I know, it's that scoundrel Judas. He's the worst. They weren't thinking that because every one of them knew it could be me. And that's the challenge that I set before you now to be open to that possibility in yourself as well. Even those who sincerely follow Jesus will sometimes exhibit a stunning lack of integrity. Not only Judas here, but soon after, Peter denies knowing Jesus three times. All of the disciples struggle with running away. And all of that is to say, if you are willing this morning to be humble and honest, then you must be willing to see the possibility of that kind of duplicity in your own heart. Are you able and willing to do that? Appearing to be someone who knows Jesus and has strong faith, but then suddenly exhibiting a stunning lack of integrity. In a moment turning out to be other than you had pretended. Behaving in a way that is directly opposed to what true faith demands. Maturity in discipleship, and in John's language, receiving the light requires that we admit the possibility in ourselves and acknowledge the presence of two sides within each and every one of us. Does anyone else here have two sides? The side that, that longs for the light and moves toward it, and that other side that pulls me back into the darkness, into the place where I turn out to be someone other than I've pretended to be. Now, if you know the story of what happens next, you know that these three darknesses, greed, first of all, and then after it, bad faith, and then duplicity, these three, they pale in comparison to what happens after this. Because after Judas leaves that meal and Jesus and his friends go to pray in the garden, while he's praying there, Judas arrives with a, a group of soldiers and he turns Jesus over with a sign. Do you know what he does? Do some of you know how he turns him over to the soldiers? He kisses him, and that is the epitome of hypocrisy and duplicity, pretending to be a friend in order to have him arrested, and that is dark. And then they take Jesus from that place to the high priest's headquarters where he's interrogated inside, and while Jesus is being questioned by the high priest and telling the truth 
with every question he's asked. Meanwhile, outside, Peter is also on trial, and he's being asked, do you know Jesus? And he's lying over and over again, and that's darkness emerging from within the community of faith. They take Jesus from the high priest's headquarters, and they bring him to Pilate, who is the Roman governor, and Pilate asks him some questions, and when Pilate's done questioning, do you know what Pilate says? This guy is innocent. He's done nothing wrong, and do you know that's light, and do you notice where it comes from? Not from God's people, but from outside of God's people. And Pilate stands before the crowds in the morning, and he says, look, you have, uh, you, you have a tradition where I release one criminal for you at Passover time, and here we have Barabbas, a notorious murderer. Can I release him? And the crowds say, no, not Barabbas. Don't release him. Uh, excuse me, not, not Jesus. Release Barabbas for us. Crucify Jesus. Away with him take him to the cross, and they give Jesus the cross, and he carries it up the hill all by himself, and this is dark, and there they take him to Golgotha, in Hebrew, the place of the skull, and they nail him to the cross, and it looks about as dark as it's ever looked, and then as time moves forward, instead of coming down off that cross and exhibiting his power for everyone to see, Jesus dies, and all of the disciples, they have to watch stunned as their master literally dies on the cross. And in this moment, it seems certain to everyone who's present that the light that shined in the darkness was overcome by the darkness. That's what it looks like. The darkness which came from the community of God's own people. Do you remember the promise at the start of John's gospel or not? Do you remember it? It's the promise that says, the light shined in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. Now, this moment where Jesus dies on the cross is the moment that John primarily has in mind when he makes that promise. And for you and I to receive that promise, we must be willing to see that the darkness that does not overcome Jesus is the darkness that we carry around in our hearts along with everyone else, everyone else that we know, the people who are faithful followers of Jesus and the ones who don't believe in him. It is our darkness that came up against the grace and mercy and love of God when Jesus came and walked among us, and it is our darkness that does not, cannot, and never will overcome the light. Do you hear that? And this is the good news that I offer you here at this Christmas service, this, this preparation service for Christmas. It is that your darkness cannot overcome the light of Jesus. It can't. And if you've ever wondered if he would reject you because of the darkness in you, trust me, he will not reject you because the light overcomes the darkness. Our greed, your greed, my greed, our greed as a church, our greed as individuals is not enough to hold back Jesus' generosity for us. We take and he gives. And we take and he gives again and he always gives. He gives himself. Our bad faith and the darkness of our duplicity does not have the power to overcome Jesus' good faith on our behalf. We are faithless. He remains faithful always. Our duplicity, the false and ugly charades that we play, they do not change Jesus' disposition toward us. He is merciful and kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. He remains true always. The light shines in our darkness, and our darkness does not overcome it. If we will see this and accept it, then there's only one more thing for us to do. 
And that is this. Listen now. It is to receive the light. And that means to believe in Jesus, to trust him. Here's how it's put at the start of John's gospel. In verse 12, after describing that that his own people didn't receive him, John goes on to write, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave power to become children of God, who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Receive Jesus. Believe in him. Uh, Trust in him and live as he leads you. God wants all of us right now to be born of the Spirit, to turn from whatever darkness we've turned to and walk in the light, to renounce greed and pursue generosity, to have no more bad faith, but rather to set down our agendas and follow the living Lord Jesus. No more pretending, being real and dedicating ourselves to the light. Will you walk in the light, yes or no? Yes, let's ask God to empower us to be faithful to that decision now. God, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name for the gift of your word and for the gift of the light that has come. God, when we're honest with ourselves, we can see our own tendencies to turn away from you and instead to go back into the darkness. Wherever each and every one of us struggles, bring those struggles to light now through the power of your spirit. Teach us to accept your your searching and exposing light and no longer to hide ourselves from you. Remind us that you are gracious and merciful and that you come to us only to give us your love and forgiveness. And then when we're honest with ourselves and with you, let the light come into every dark place and chasing away all of the ways we resist you and make us individuals and make us a church that is able to both receive and then reflect your light into this world, which so desperately needs the light which you have brought. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.